With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. And, you know, we've been continuing to cover all these comeback, the untold story, because it's just an amazing story, in my opinion, of a time. And the story just really not been told like this documentary is. So I'm excited to welcome another person from the movie, uh, the documentary, Idi Uyo. Idi, thanks for stopping by the Neil Haley Show. How are you? Uh, thanks, Neil. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Let's learn about your background before we get into why you got involved in film. Yeah, so my background is acting technology. I spent about 12 years right out of college, right out of undergrad, uh, working in the technology sector for a big tech company. I worked at IBM, and most of the, some of the projects that I had were always sports-related, whether I was working with the Olympics in Atlanta or Nagano or places like that. And so I have always been a sports person, true and true. So though my career is in technology, I have always been around sports, whether it is in official capacity, unofficial capacity, or whether it's in sports business development, sales, marketing, what have you. And so I left IBM. I started my own software design firm, worked there for about six years. And one of the projects we worked on was the FIFA World Cup in South Africa in 2010. And I got a chance to see up close just how brands marketed sports, whether it was Adidas, Coca-Cola, and what have you. So I decided to transition. I sold my company and I went back to school, picked up a master's at Northwestern University. And since then, I have been working as a sports marketer, sports consultant, wow. historian, and uh, what have you. So currently, right now, we're consulting for National Olympic Committees around the world, where we assist them with marketing, branding, content development, business development, sponsorship, and those types of activities. They're going to be busy soon, right? Because once, hopefully, with meaning COVID lifting and the, the possibilities of the Olympics still are good shape, not being canceled this summer? Uh, you know, that's they're still trying to work that out. As of right now, today, February 19, 2021, the Olympics are still slated to start for July of this year. Um, of course, you know, with COVID, it's a very fluid situation. We are still working with our clients, other National Olympic committees, as if the games are going to go forward. So we're in full preparation mode already. So how did you get involved in Ali's comeback? Yeah, so... Uh, I think it was back in 2016, uh, Art Jones, who's the director of the film, uh, approached me and through an intermediary, and he had seen some of my work because we, at that point, we had done content development work, and some of it was around Muhammad Ali and his involvement in the Olympics. And so having met with, all, uh, with Art a couple of times, I needed to really figure out if I was the right person to tell the story, if I was a good fit for the film. So through... Uh, multiple conversations it would just determine that I was and I was brought on to tell the story of Wally between 1967 and 1970 and even in some ways beyond and how that comeback fight in 1970 helped shape Ali for the rest of his career. Okay so based on you being a historian is that where you're bringing the knowledge into the help art? Correct yeah based on my very extensive background in sports history. Interesting. But see, when you were at IBM and all that stuff, did you have that sports history background? I did, but I just never pursued it. Oh, yeah. I mean, even wow. from, I mean, uh, so I go and I'm going to date myself here way back to 1976 Olympics. My parents, who were teachers, my dad taught at the university, um, always used sports as a teaching tool. So mm -hmm. like in 1976, used the Olympics as a teaching tool. We learned about apartheid and so on. And 
so yeah, I've always been neck deep into the backstory of sports and sporting events and historical significance. So what attracts you to Ali? Yeah, so um, Ali himself was probably one of the more polarizing figures of the 20th century. I mean, both in the world, in the realm of sports, in the realm of popular culture, and in the realm of politics. And if you consider how volatile the 60s were, particularly in the late 60s and into the 70s, Muhammad Ali was a central theme in that entire story. Whether it was Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympic Games raising the black glove fist, one of their demands was the restoration of Muhammad Ali as the legitimate heavyweight champion of the world. Or whether it was Ali joining the Nation of Islam, a very controversial move at that time. Or whether it was Ali being yeah. drafted and then refusing uh, to be inducted, despite the fact that he had actually failed the exam, the aptitude exam for the draft two years earlier. So they couldn't understand why they had lowered the requirements and then tried to draft him again. So Ali has just been one of these figures that has transcended the world of sports. I mean, there was a Cold War element uh, to Ali. There was the political dimension, as I mentioned earlier. So we went from having a sportsman to someone who was perhaps, along with Pele, the most recognizable name in all of sports, if not um, if not the world. Everybody knew who Muhammad Ali was. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and you're right, polarizing, but also the fact that he was one of the most charismatic uh, athletes of all time. Muhammad Ali made ABC's Wide World of Sports back in the day with Howard Cosell. I mean, back in those days, athletes were expected to, quote unquote, shut up and dribble. Ali was never about that. Ali was... But Ali was very outspoken. But for that to happen, Ali needed to be authentic, which those around him say he was. And history actually bears that out with the Cleveland Conference, uh, where you had Jim Brown, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, trying to determine whether, this was back in uh, 1968, mm -hmm. trying to determine whether or not they would back Ali's stance against being drafted into the Vietnam War. So um, there are many tentacles that attracted people to Ali as a figure, both those who supported Ali and those who are, were detractors, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So that, again, the story, which Art and I have discussed and all these different things, you saw this in a historical lens in a different way, What consulting this film. Like you knew that the people that were gonna be interviewed in it, but you all also understand you wanted to bring your historical perspective of what people that might have had a bias that were interviewed in the movie compared to someone like yourself that looks at the newspaper clippings, both sides of the story, you are trying to be unbiased in this account, correct? Yeah, objectivity was very important in terms of telling an authentic story. Um, Muhammad Ali was by no means a saint, but when this happened, you had to consider that there were, there were those around him that were pretty skeptical of his motivations initially. Like, all right, well, why is he doing this? I mean, we haven't heard you talk about uh, being against war previously and so you know you now you're coming up with this let's 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 dig a little deeper let's engage and understand where you're coming from and of course he famously said ain't no Viet Cong would call me a nigger and things of this nature so uh other athletes people in society were able to rally around him because of that authenticity and so as an individual he himself was also able to stand by those principles and he was able to, in those three years that he was out of boxing, he got a lot of support from other fighters like Joe Frazier uh, provided financial support, believe it or not, and others. And so, yeah, and he took out jobs. He spoke at campuses, university campuses across the country. He sang for a moment. He had his own musical group. So he did a lot of things to stay afloat during those, uh, during those three years. But the key thing was he never wavered. In fact, there was an agreement there was brokered through back channel deals between the chairman of the Democratic National Committee and Lyndon Johnson. Oh, wow. And the compromise was, Ali, all you have to do is put on a military uniform and stage boxing exhibitions for U.S. troops in bases in the United States. You don't even need to leave the U.S. Oh, wow. Just do these boxing exhibitions and this whole case goes away. And he refused to put on the uniform and he rejected the compromise. Oh, no. He rejected the compromise. And again, for those who don't know, the backstory of this was he was drafted. He refused to go into the Vietnam War. 
he was fined $10,000, sentenced to five years imprisonment, and his title was stripped away from him. By the WBA version of his title was stripped away from him. So in essence, he couldn't fight. He was, um, he just couldn't fight because no commission, in those days, boxing was sanctioned by the individual boxing commissions of the states. So none of the 50 states would give him a license to fight. Now, there was a deal in Nevada with a gambler known as Jimmy the Greek. People know Jimmy the Greek more for his work on the NFL today. Jimmy the Greek and Bob Arum came up with this scheme where Bob Arum would promote the fight in Las Vegas against Joe Frazier in 1970. The billionaire Howard Hughes gets wind of this, and he tells Governor Nevada Governor Paul Laxalt at the time, you're not going to do this. And Howard Hughes was so powerful that he could, in fact, pick up the phone and call the governor and say, hey, you're not going to do this. Howard Hughes, obviously a very big supporter of the military, you know, Hughes right. aircraft, Hughes this. He said, no, this guy's a draft dodger. You can't let him in. You can't let him fight in Las Vegas. So that makes that. And of course, that opened the door for Georgia, which did not have a boxing commission at the time. And in that story of Georgia is in itself a story that uh, we went through, right? You know, the whole story of Georgia in general in the fact of what kind of racial times were there. That's a surprise that that is where all these comeback happens, right? In a lot yeah, of there, In that era, there were deep racial tensions in the Southern US and Atlanta was emerging as the cradle of the civil rights movement with Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King, Andrew Young, Ralph David Abernathy. And these were the men that would lead protests through the South and campaign for civil rights. And so it, Georgia was a very unlikely choice. Senator Leroy Jordan, who'd been the first black senator in the state of Georgia since Reconstruction, so a period of 92 years, led the effort and his team wow. figured out that there was no boxing commission in the state of Georgia. And so along with the Jewish mayor, um, Sam Massell at the time, they were able to make the fight happen to sanction the fight primarily because there was no boxing commission to oppose Ali fighting in the state of Georgia. But even then, that was a highly political thing. Marcel himself did not, and he was very reluctant to do this. There was quite a bit of pressure on Marcel not to allow Ali to fight. But through, again, back channel discussions, uh, they were able to work it out. When you knew you were going to be the historian on this film and you were going to be interviewed as well, did you find out new stuff that you might have not known about that time period when you did your research? Most of the research, because you know, when you're when you're working with Ollie in the sports industry, it's an ongoing. I mean, you never really stop researching, if you will. So most of the from almost all the information I'd known, the only uh, new thing I think that came out uh, when I was working on the film was the resistance, just the level of resistance to the, with the KKK and other organizations yeah. within the state of Georgia and Atlanta specifically that were absolutely against the fight. In fact, I tell you something else. In 1996, Ali lit the Olympic, cauldron, the Olympic, the Olympic flame, the cauldron yeah. at the 1996 Olympic Games. We remember him standing there shaking with yes. Parkinson's disease while he did it. One of the more iconic moments in Olympic history, that almost didn't happen. The, the chairman of the Atlanta Organizing Committee, Billy Payne, who later became chairman of Augusta National, initially when NBC officials approached him with the idea of Ali lighting the Olympic cauldron, he said, no, that where we're from, he's considered oh a draft dodger. You know, So that almost didn't happen. But it was interesting how they were able to work it out and Ali's career would come full circle. From resurrecting his career in 1970, to lighting the Olympic cauldron and perhaps one of the most visible events in all of sports. Do you feel Ali ever came back to his prime after uh, choosing to not fight and mean because of his religion and then end up being kicked out of boxing for three years? Do you think he ever got back to his prime that he was before, in your opinion, as a historian? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, prior to that, Ali was unbeaten. Um, of course, Olympic gold medalist, uh, second youngest champion ever to win the heavyweight division. Floyd Patterson was the first. And I think that any time you are off in just about any profession for three years, it does take 
uh, quite a bit out of you, and he was in his prime years. His comeback fight against Jay Corey, Matt, but then March 8, 1971, in Madison Square Garden against Joe Lewis, uh, excuse me, Joe Frazier, he lost. And there are those that suggest that he was not quite informed, but again, it's hard to know. But I would say that when you're off that much for that length of time from just about any profession, let alone one that require, requires physical exertion and with a professional athlete's career is an extremely short window, it certainly takes a lot out of you. But we would also not forget that um, Four years later in Kinshasa's Zaire, he did beat George Foreman to regain the heavyweight championship of the world. And so, you know, it's kind of hard to say. And he wouldn't lose again until 1978 when the Austin speaks. You think the stress of that time being off of boxing hurt his health in any way? Or do you think it was just boxing that hurt his health in certain ways? I don't think his time being off uh, hurt his health. I think that in fact his time being off may have in some ways prolonged his career because three years you're not getting hit, right? So that did allow him perhaps to fight perhaps even a little longer than most people think he should have. Should have retired a few years earlier, but you know, that's, you know, everyone's subject to their own opinion. But no, I don't think the time off hurt him, but I do think, I, I don't think the time off hurt him physically, but I do think that the time off from a boxing perspective um, did in fact truncate his career slightly. So let's look at, you talk about his career and all those different things and all that. What about the interviews of the other athletes and other people? What surprised you the most of the interviews? Because those are historical accounts for people that were there or part of it, were part of Ali's life that maybe you didn't see in reading back in different newspaper articles and different things. The, different magnitude, the magnitude of the event itself. This was perhaps the biggest sporting event at the time. I um, very just the, the the sheer volume of interest in Muhammad Ali as an individual, and to see this type of wealth cut across the boundaries of society, whether it was entertainment, popular culture, politics, sports, music, entertainment, even gangsters, right, descended right. on Atlanta to to see this, and so as I am doing the research for this, as I am talking to other people within the film, and even those that did not make it on screen, the sheer magnitude cannot be understated or even overstated, if you will, as to how significant an event this was because of what was at stake. Either this individual who was considered loud and brash and polarizing, either he would be silenced forever or his career would continue. And there are those that feel that he got a raw deal. And so let's not leave that out either. So um, what I, my big takeaway in doing the research for the film was the fact that uh, just how big, I knew it was a big, but how outsized the event was. Right, exactly. And that's things that you don't see. Now, looking at, looking back at the whole, you know, the entire film and all of it, what was your take after the documentary came out and you got to view it and watch it? Yeah, no, I was pleased with the, uh, I was pleased with the content. I felt that, uh, there's a lot of people that worked on the documentary. I mean, Yahya McClain, Doug Bowling, Art Jones, of course, and Dr. Khalil Ali, Ali's ex-wife, yes. and um, others. So, and then Andrew Young, Dr. Edwin Moses, who was uh, at Morehouse College, um, where Ali actually fought. In fact, the original comeback was supposed to be at Morehouse um, before it was moved to the gym at Georgia State. But just in general, being able to share a platform with Andrew Young, with Jim Brown, the great running back for the Cleveland Browns, and with Dr. Moses, with Evander Holyfield, and just hearing them talk about their perspectives on Muhammad Ali, both, and some of the things obviously didn't make it into the film, some of the rough edits behind the scenes, but just getting the anecdotes of those, um, of those conversations from the likes of uh, Jim Brown and from Dr. Ali, that was, um, to me, that was quite rewarding. So what's new with you? I mean, you again, you talk about the Olympic stuff. I, I'm just impressed. I saw your CV or the thing you sent me, and I was blown away with the accolades you've had in sports career and what you've done in sports arenas and stadiums and all this impressive stuff. What's new, what new projects do you have coming up? Yeah, so for me, coming to Atlanta in 2026, so 
trying to figure out how I can add value in that area. Continuing to work with clients in the sphere, in the realm of the Olympic Games, but also continuing down this path of continuing to develop documentaries, telling stories, being able to perhaps bring the viewer, the story behind the story of these athletes, of these figures and individuals who helped shape sports, not just in the past, but setting the trend for where exactly. sports is going. So yeah, telling stories is something you need to incorporate into my, into my portfolio. Well, it's fantastic. And you're an impressive guy for sure, Heidi. And I really appreciate this. And so uh, let's go with other sports. What do you say your expertise in sports? Do you cover, do you like, is sports historian you big in football? What's your favorite sport that you like to as uh, Yeah, well, um, for me, it's, um, I, I don't necessarily know that I, I have a favorite meal. I mean, uh, as a storyteller, I am intrigued by what motivates athletes, what motivates right. uh, the various brands. Uh, but if I had to say I love athletics, of course, it's big during the Olympics. And I'm a big follower of European football, both Liverpool and Real Madrid. Really? I'm like, yeah, huge, huge fan of um, the European football, Champions League, uh, Premier League, uh, La Liga. Follow a lot of European football and also the NFL. Curious to see what the NFL is going to do as far as expanding their footprint into other geographies. Exactly. And with COVID, what happens next in this expansion? When you talk about the NFL, when they were going to Europe and all that stuff, and now COVID, how do you think the sports have handled COVID, in your opinion? Yeah, so, of course, it was new across the board. So some sports handled it a little bit better than others. Um, we were able to see, though, that in those economies, those countries that had perhaps a better social fabric like Germany, sports was able to come back quicker. So for us in the U.S., it was, a, it was a slow rollout. We had an NBA bubble that was quite successful. But teams are going to have to reimagine their sports arenas, how they engage with fans, and some of the policy changes, not just for fans coming to the stadium, but perhaps uh, what are the boundaries between keeping fans safe and then requiring somebody to have an inoculation to show some kind of a vaccine certificate before, you know, those privacy yeah. sort of things. So sports teams and leagues are going to need to figure out how that is going to work. Personally, I think we're still a year or two away from having full capacity in this country. Now, a place like Australia, where you have stadiums are packed because of how they handled the pandemic as a country. So right. for us... Uh, it's a little bit more challenging. Individual sports leagues, and again, in those places, they have ministries of sports that set policies. Exactly. Uh, sports are so much more privatized. So individual leagues, which are not necessarily seen, overseen by government, set policies. So, you know, government has very little influence or control over the sports league. So individually, they've got to set uh, standards, and it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to manage that with sponsorship commitments, marketing, keeping fans safe. Exactly. It's going to be across the board. So uh, we'll see how that works out. But I do think that um, eventually we're going to get back to full sports as we need them. No, so that's awesome. Again, in best place, uh, first of all, Ollie's comeback, the untold story is available everywhere. You go check it and Google and you'll find it. And the movie is all the places. But what about for you? Where can we connect with you, Idy? You can find me at Twitter at ID Sports, I-D-Y-S-P-O-R-T-S. You can check out my YouTube channel, ID Uyo. That's I-D-Y, and the last name is U-Y-O-E. Um, or you can find ID Sports in a couple of YouTube. So right now, the best place to connect with me is on Twitter. Very soon, we're going to be amplifying on our two YouTube channels. All right. Well, fantastic. Love to be in. Any type of a help in that process when you're building those YouTube channels out and stuff like that. I have a digital marketing tech company, so I'd love to kind of look at what you're doing and any way I can provide any advice or assistance or collaborate, we should definitely do it. So I appreciate you stopping by. Uh, you're welcome, Neil. If I could just say one more thing, I left out the most important thing, which is our website, www.idsports.com, I-D-Y-S-P-O-R-T-S, one word, idsports.com. Go check out our work, see what's coming in the future. We'd love to engage with uh, your audience. All right. Well, thanks for stopping by. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Neil. Thank you. All right. That was the Neil Haley Show, guys. Take care.
celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download celebrity slots today. We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome the program Caregiver Dave and Sandy. Dave, how are you? And what's I'm going awesome. on? Man? I'm awesome. How are you doing? Good. Didn't you like last week's conversation? I always have great it, it was amazing. You never disappoint, Neil. You never, you know, never disappoint whoever you're getting. You never know their story, <laughs> what their story is going to be about. And that's what's so great about interviewing over 7,000 plus people. <clears throat> Someday I'll have them all in one, one place to find them all. But that'll be, I have to hire somebody that cost me thousands of thousands, no, hundreds of thousands of dollars. <clears throat> but our guest today is Peter Woodward. And Peter Woodward is. We know him from the Patriot. We're talking about Dalton Island and his career. Peter, what's up? Stop for, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm pretty good. You should get the Super Bowl, actually, for all your 7,000. You know, and as they increase over the years, you know, you should have a sort of Neil Haley Super Bowl in which everyone you know, sits <laughs> around. together you, for an event. Call. All the different celebrities <laughs> all together. And anyone that's been on the show, I love it. You, you can set it up. Security. And we could, be in, we could be in L.A. And, you know, it could be a super spreader. You know, I wanted to celebrate. 10,000 interviews whenever that day comes and I'll make it up and say we hit 10,000. Okay, let's invite as many people to a great event. I love it. I think so. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> so it's kind of funny, Peter, that they talked about, you know, number of shows. There was a show called Mike and Mike in the Morning that was on ESPN and they were celebrating how many years and they did it longer than me, but they did less shows. I'm like, what did I do? How did I do this? But it's because I've short interviews. Some are eight, some are 15, some are 30, some are an hour. And when I was just doing radio shows, yeah, I produced five hours of programming a week, right? But there's maybe 10 interviews out of those five hours. And then it goes to podcasting and our business has changed, right? Podcasting used yeah. to be a thing that people were like, ah, podcast, I'd rather be on a radio show. Now it's changed, Peter. Isn't that yeah. amazing how well, things, you know, change in the it way? Is, but also, I mean, in the past year, for obvious reasons, you know, um, it used to be a real, frankly, a bit of a pain to do these interviews because uh -huh. you'd either have to do them on the telephone, in which case you had no real contact, or you had to go into a studio and you had to dress up and put a tie on and all that stuff. And now, you know, you're in my home. You know, you just... Right, and the uh, tours would be all such a pain in the butt. You, you've done them, right? Uh -huh. We yeah. done those tours were nine to eleven in the morning, which would be six to nine, eight for you, and you're constantly talking to somebody for fifteen minutes about a project, right? You've done those, been there, yeah. done that, have a teacher to prove it. I've been there and done that, and I won't do it anymore. I'd rather have a longer <laughs> one because you don't get to develop that connection yeah. and that relationship. So let's talk, Peter. You're known for the Patriot. What? So for Dave that saw the Patriot, and I did too. Tell us your character in the Patriot before we get some Dalton. I, I'm trying to imagine who you were, and I think you were that bad British officer who killed everybody. No, I, I was the aide de camp to the bad British officer. Um, yeah, the Patriot is yeah, it's, it's something that a lot of people remember me for. I've, I've done a lot of other stuff, but yeah, that that, that does. You had hair, right? At the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I did. Well, it was it was a wig, you know. I mean, in those days, everybody um, we, wig. we bald folk didn't have to worry because everyone wore wigs anyway, from George Washington down. Right. So you know, everyone had hair, so that was all right. Then. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's crazy that that's so remembered. Um, you know, I had a relatively small part in it, but uh, it's um, uh, it was one of those last really great huge movies i mean i remember going yeah. to the set of the patriot and i saw this vast field with massive mechanical cranes and camera trucks and yeah. you know and then i thought this is amazing and then they said oh no there are three more fields after this you know? <laughs> <laughs> what was it like working with mel he was great or mel it, yeah he was great he was a, a really nice guy and uh, very friendly and so, you yeah. know um, not starry at all 
Um, my father was a, a well-known actor, so I'm used to being around stars and working with them. Yeah, and, you guys and... are real actors, uh, yeah. like Sir <laughs> yeah. Richard Burton, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, well, Royal Shakespeare Company. Wow, shall all we? All that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I've done all royalty. That stuff. But, but it's also that um, you know, because of that, I, I don't have any time for anyone who's remotely starry. <laughs> uh, I just, I just, you know, walk away. Um, uh, but Mel was a really nice guy, um, and um, uh, a very, very talented too. A very fine actor, and I think because of of the difficulties that he's had um, over the past few years, right. which I know he's been trying to solve. But because of those difficulties, you know, we tend to forget what a really good actor he is. You know, oh, that's, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's true. Yeah. So Peter, I could just answer that question. You said it was a small role. What was the role in the Patriot? Oh, well, I, I was um, uh, the assistant to the really bad, uh, to the really bad guy, or one of the really bad guys. Um, in did his dirty and, work. Uh, General O'Hara was, was my name, yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, and it, was, it was one of my um, earlier jobs when I, I came to uh, Los Angeles. I came here about 20 years ago, and it was one of my earlier jobs. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of, uh, of TV and stuff um, since then. And... Um, and you're a I'm also a writer, so I mainly write now. Um, that's mainly what I'm up to. You see that cat in the background? I do <laughs> see that cat. It's, it's cool. That's a great thing. Because Dave wants to bring up cat. I'm not going to go cat. I'm going to go real quick. One more question, Peter. What would you think your fans see you best known for? You have a, a good laundry list of different major yeah. shows you were on. Probably a, a bunch of those science fiction shows that I did, um, uh, Crusade and Babylon Five, uh, the movies and Babylon yeah. Five and and Charmed. I was the source of all evil in Charmed. I'll have you know, oh. and not many people <laughs> can say they're the source of all evil, but I can. Um, that's yeah, that was the yeah. the old Charmed. You've probably. got that look, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, we all have that look, don't we? You know. <laughs> I mean, what, 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 when you've got this up there, the thing is that everyone <laughs> tends to cast you as a baddie. <laughs> Which is why doing this movie Dolphin Island was so was so great because you know for once I was uh, I was I was a good guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're a good guy and a very yeah. good guy. So tell us about the character and the premise of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean Dolphin Island is one of those rare things nowadays, which is a um, a family movie, um, really designed for everyone to watch and enjoy, um, and it's about a, uh, a a young girl who is uh, who's orphaned. And uh, she goes to live with her grandfather in the Bahamas. And we shot the whole thing in the Bahamas just before COVID. So we were really lucky. And it was really the most beautiful locations in the Bahamas. Fantastic place. Um, but of course, I wasn't the star. And um, the girl playing my uh, granddaughter wasn't the star. The star was a dolphin. Okay. There's these dolphins. You can't be, you can't be <laughs> a dolphin, right? You'll never get the autographs you know, that a dolphin will get, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the dolphins were the most amazing actors. I mean, they are extremely well trained. And um, we went to a facility where, where they are completely open to go out into the ocean if they want. Um, you know, they're not uh, trapped or penned in in any way because we didn't want any of that. So they work voluntarily. They work voluntarily. Well, they work for fish. You know, <laughs> kind of like me. You know, we'll I work for fish. Too. You know, give me a good yeah. fish, I'll, I'll do you a movie. And I bet <laughs> you have a new appreciation for dolphins. I do. They are the most very smart creatures. I mean, obviously they're mammals like us, and you tend to forget that. You know, you get into their element, which is the water, and you tend to think, "Well, this is this is obviously there's Gadigan." <laughs> Am obviously you know, the, um, uh, this is the dolphin world, but it's also a mammal world. And, and these dolphins, they look at you. You know, they look straight at you, and and you know that they're thinking about you and who you are and whether you're going to be okay and whether you're going to hurt them or whether you're going to play with them and whether you're going to have whether you're going to give them fish. <laughs> and um, yeah, they, they were amazing. And of course, their uh, trainers, the Bohemian trainers, uh, were just extraordinary with them. You know, I mean, we 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 asked them some pretty difficult things. You know, um, do you think we could get a dolphin to to pick up a you know a discarded right. piece yeah. of trash on its nose? And they said, well, we've never done that before, but let's try it. <laughs> so we had this character throwing some trash into the into the water, which of course he shouldn't do. And the dolphin came up underneath the trash, lifted it up, and gave it back to us. It was just extraordinary never done wow. that before, you know so i mean if anyone ever thinks you know um that uh, that the, the mammals that are in the water the whales and the dolphins and you know if anyone ever thinks that they are so far away from us that it doesn't matter what happens to them well you look a dolphin in the eye and you'll change your mind 
Well, it sounds like a great family movie with a lot of moral uh, subjects. In it. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's fun and it's exciting. And, that, yeah. yeah, yeah, and it, it's uh, it's basically because the the uh, other grandparents who are rich come to try right. and claim the granddaughter back. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm a great grandfather, so yeah, my job is cut out for me. So, are you drawn now to family films? Well, yeah, I, I am. Um, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed things that... Uh, I, I don't like you've got kids of your own? I do. I have one, but he's 26, so he's, oh. he's on his own now. <laughs> but grandkids but, on the way. Yeah, well, maybe. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't like violent movies. I just don't... I don't watch them because I don't like them. Um, you know, and, and I've written some. You know, I've written some violent movies, so I, I understand that there is a place for violence in the movies if it tells the story and if it's part of the story. But... I just personally don't like watching it. I just turn it yeah, off. Me too. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, I've and I've just, funny enough, I've just finished um, directing my first movie, which was a, which is a comedy, um, a romantic oh. comedy. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very much into what is being made at the moment and what is not being made. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's an excuse for COVID. Um, I don't think that's a good enough excuse. There simply sure. aren't enough movies being made, which are genuinely family oriented now i know they're all superhero movies but i don't know what you feel about them for me there's too many explosions too many people being knocked down and and yeah i just i'm a sucker for romantic comedy but you know that makes me a wuss right (laughs) but you would have thought so i think the problem is that (laughs) that the romantic comedy has has gone into a bit of a decline lately you know there haven't been any really good ones that's because of again covid because again, you can't really have a romantic comedy in life because really, or no one's living that life right now. So I think people have it. given up on on romance, you know, because they can't find that relationship, and they're in a bad marriage, and uh, you know, they're constantly breaking up with their boyfriend, girlfriend. And, well, let's and hope and let's it, Dave. Let's keep the positivity. So let's move on. So Peter, um, the movie. What would you say your fondest moments of being in this movie, like working with the cast, kind of give us that update now. Yeah, I mean, uh, there were there were a couple of, of, of great moments. It was uh, working with the Bahamian locals, um, some of whom were actors and good ones, and some of whom had, had very limited acting experience. Um, but they were really, you know, open to it, and um, and that that was very enjoyable. Um, I just worked, liked working in the Bahamas; it was such fun. Um, but yeah, no question. I mean, working with those dolphins in the water. Um, it's just an extraordinary experience. Um, you're you're so aware that they. Um, that they are looking after you. In fact, one of the trainers yeah. told me that there was a, um, when they went out onto, into the ocean once, there was a wild dolphin. Um, and occasionally a dolphin will take against you and butt you and not like you, you know. And there was this, this wild dolphin which was circling the trainer and the other dolphins actually yeah. gathered around him and they swam with him back to the boat and they kept the other dolphin away. Wow. And you think that's extraordinary because that means that they actually not only could see what was happening, but had decided that they were going to intervene. Very intelligent. And decided that they wanted to intervene, you know, that they didn't want this person, this human, to be hurt. You know, yeah. and I mean, you get the feeling, if ever you get a chance to go down to Florida, go wherever, um, if you ever get a chance to swim with dolphins, it is the most extraordinary feeling yeah. that you have um, with these creatures. And that's yeah. what I think everyone in the cast um uh, you know, they used to do that a, at, at Marineland down in there, and then uh, you know the conservatives uh, shut them down. So yeah, well, I think it's very important for um, for all mammals, uh, whales, dolphins, whatever they are, um, to be in a, a facility which allows them total access to the ocean if sure. they want to go. Um, you know that that's my feeling. Um, uh, yeah. If they want to swim away, you know, then they should be allowed to. Um, I don't believe in penning up dolphins unless it's a specific purpose, you know, um, if they're sick or they're unhealthy or something. But otherwise, they should be free. Yeah. Is this your first experience working with dolphins? Yeah, totally. Totally. And, you know, and I, I you know, I, I come from England originally, so you can probably tell it from my accent. And <laughs> we have a lot of dolphins and porpoises uh, all around the coast, but it's too damned cold to get in the water most of the time. <laughs> so you, you don't really want to go near them. Welcome um, to LA. Yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us the plot of the movie without spoiling it for those who haven't seen it? Yeah. Yes. It's it's really pretty straightforward. Um, a, a grandfather looks after his granddaughter, um, and they go fishing, and they live a fairly basic existence. Uh, she goes to school, a local Bahamian school, 
and um, she meets a young bohemian boy who, you know, they uh, are attracted to each other. And um, the boy's mother is also attracted to the grandfather. So oh, um, cute, they yeah. start to get along. That starts. And then suddenly everything goes horribly wrong when the other grandparents from New York turn up and decide that this has gone on long enough, that this um, that this child is obviously not receiving the, the very strict upbringing and the a very high level of education that she requires. And therefore, they're, they're going to go to court and try and take her away. She doesn't want to go. The grandfather doesn't want her to go. And the dolphins especially don't want her to go <laughs> uh, because she's great friends with them and she works at a, at a dolphin sanctuary. So um, class and, warfare there. Yeah, that's it. Part of the and, this is written. Was that there's a certain reason that the writer, the, the writer wanted to write the story? Well, though, the, um, there was uh, uh, there have been a few dolphin movies, um, uh, you know, over over um, the years, Flippers. and um, the Bahamas especially hasn't had a lot of movies written and um, scripted there to be shot there. So I, I think you know a, a few things came together, and um, uh, if you if you say the word dolphin movie you know, to <laughs> to a network or a broadcaster or a, you know a production house. They tend to say, um, yeah, we haven't had one of those for a little while. Let's have a dolphin movie. <laughs> and I think that's probably what happened. Um, and I have to say, you know, I mean, the production quality, I, mean, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the trailer even, you know, is, is really high. And um, it's, uh, it's definitely a family movie. Um, there's nothing in it that's going to upset anyone. Um, even the, the conservatives, time, you know, right? Conservatives. Yeah, well, it, Yes, but it gets conservationists is what I meant to say. Yeah. Conservationists, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Your, your mind yeah. is thinking on other things, Dave. Uh, <laughs> yes. wanted dolphins, so now conservatives don't like dolphins. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. So, uh, your hope ever to do another dolphin movie? Like, I'd love to. Reaching out and say, or, or you can't wait to swim with dolphins after COVID or a chance again? Do it. Yeah, maybe absolutely. He's gonna, maybe he's going to buy his own dolphin, uh, give his cat company. Maybe my own next movie should be a dolphin movie, yeah. Or, or perhaps I'll, I'll do something different, like a, a, a turtle movie. Um, I'm sure turtles have just the same interpretation. Hey, we haven't done a turtle movie in a while, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's awesome. Oh. Yeah, so kind of to go back and all the things, uh, Peter, <clears throat> plans for you right now after this is kind of give us an update, the challenge of of auditioning during this time period of COVID. Give us an update where it's going, yeah. Well, I'm very lucky because I'm a writer as well. Um, I actually spent um, the first six months of COVID writing a TV series, which is gonna be shooting in Ireland um, uh, in uh, May, oh. April, May. Um, it's called the Free State. So I'll be going over there for a while. Um, but I also used the second part of last year to um, get together and, and shoot my own movie, which is called Outrageous, um, which is, a, a, as I say, a romantic comedy. You could call it a sex comedy, but I call it both. Um, and uh, uh, so that we're, we've just started post-production on, so perhaps, you know, end of the year. So I have actually been very fortunate in my COVID lockdown year. Um, I know a lot of my colleagues have just had yeah. the most miserable time, um, you know, and I know it's it's been difficult for you guys too, because although it's you know what you're doing is fantastic, but at the same time, it's really nice to meet people face to face. I I can't wait, yeah. and that's the thing of the business of traveling, things like that. You can't do that anymore. You know, yeah. I'm fine with the interviews because I've done them in my uh, studio for years. But the fact is, never to get to do red carpets, not get to travel. You know, even though some people do, Dave travels, <laughs> but uh, you know, it just all depends your mindset in a lot of ways. And do you really need to travel? with this environment now. So where we're going is Peter and I started with the whole thing, the event we're planning with the 10,000th interview that all these celebrities in LA, Dave will be there, we'll be partying and no one will be wearing masks. Let's hope that, that happens. Well, that'd be wonderful. Interviews, that might happen. Let's do math. <laughs> but average 10 a week for 300, yeah. you know, for X amount of weeks. When will that be? Maybe two years. So right yeah. Oh, Neil, it'll be so wonderful. I'll be able to kiss you without a mask. I'll be able to just be wonderful. <laughs> we'll be able to rub heads. <laughs> exactly. And how tall are you, Peter? I'm 5'11". I'm 6'10". 
So, oh, there's no chops. <laughs> rubbing heads, uh, that doesn't sound good. All right, so let's go. Dave, let's ask the caregiver Dave question. Is The reason why I call him caregiver Dave is he has a story and ask that question to Peter. Okay, yeah. And um, COVID hasn't been too bad to me because I've been doing a lot of television interviews. And now I don't have to travel. I can do them right from Zoom. But yeah. about 24 years ago, my wife had this headache, headache of her life, lasted three days. And on that fourth day, it turned into a stroke. She lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. And in that moment, our world, Peter, turned upside down. Uh, nothing would ever be the same again. She lost mm -hmm. her speech. She can still communicate, uh, but she can't speak right now. And she's still um, uh, paralyzed on one side. And we travel all around the world now, just sharing our message to caregivers, because I discovered there are so many other caregivers who are suffering and feeling lost and alone. And we struggled for a couple of years. And I didn't want him to suffer anymore. I didn't want him to give up like I almost gave up. And so I'm Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. And, and so I'm, I'm writing my fourth book now. And the bottom line is, I believe that if uh, anyone is either going to become a caregiver or need a caregiver, it's this caregiver tsunami coming. Baby boomers are getting older, your parents, your grandparents. Uh, how has caregiving touched your life? Or has well, it? You know, um, it's it's an extraordinary thing. I've got to the age um, where a lot of us start losing our parents. Um, I've lost both of mine now, oh, and so um, yeah, yes. But it, it's the, the the thing is, it's it almost makes you feel guilty because um, both of them um, died fairly quickly um, and relatively easily. My mother, bless her heart, just got up in the morning and fell yeah. over, and that was it. That's how I want to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, you know, there was no warning at all. Um, so I have not been in the position which so many millions of people of my age, particularly, and much younger, of course, have been in, um, of, uh, of the lingering death of someone who you really love. You cannot abandon them. You have to abandon your own life in order to give them the last, you know, year yeah. or two of their lives. And it's just the most extraordinary sacrifice that millions of people all over the world are making. And, um, it's especially now in COVID times, of course, it's yeah. extremely difficult because, quite frankly, you have to risk your own life to save your loved ones, you know, and um, it, it, if you're allowed to, you know, it, it is the yeah. most extraordinary thing. And it's definitely not, um, there's not enough attention given to the caregiver and their roles. It's, it's very often women, but not always, such as in your case. Yeah. Um, and it, if you, you have to ask yourself the question as a caregiver, you know, why? Why has this happened to me and not to anyone else? Um, and I think the answer is, well, it has happened to vast numbers of people. Um, people like me, you could say I was lucky in that my parents both had a peaceful, quick passing. And I didn't have years and years and years of looking after them. Um, but, you know, it's it's uh, when I think about my own death, as we all should regularly, yeah. you know, we should think about that. Um, when I think about that and, and approaching it, you know, of course, I, I hope it happens swiftly and easily. But if it doesn't, then who's going to look after me? Will my son have to care for me in my, you know, in my dotage? Perhaps if I'm unfortunate enough, as so many of our friends are if i'm unfortunate enough to have one of those diseases where you start to lose your mind before your body right um you know it the, it's it's just such a, a large area of concern oh, i don't mind peter i just screamed the father with anthony hopkins oh yeah. my goodness yeah and tony been, bennett is the latest one his family just yeah, said but, he's, but he if you Alzheimer's. watch that movie i don't know if it's getting a good move in hollywood but which one you was going the father Father, yeah. so well, i guess that's a plug yeah. for the movie already but yeah but peter yeah. so it's all it's great uh catching up working our your fans follow you you on social media and stuff that people connect with you okay i have to admit to you i am not on social media okay i i was born i was born before the internet and i've never really caught up of course i i'm on zoom now which is pretty amazing you know <laughs> hey i'm on zoom everybody and i did that myself with these fingers you know but i i am the most useless social media person i you know I, you I need someone social... like neil he can he can fix you up he <laughs> yeah, can hook right. you up take I care have of a social him. media presence of zero i'm afraid so yeah. no um a, a fan actually opened a facebook um uh, 
thing for me. And I, I've never been on it and I've never been able to sh shut it down. Um, so <laughs> how many likes so far? <laughs> I've no idea who no likes idea. me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Peter, we can check out Dolphin Island very easily at the website, right? For... Yeah, it, it'll be on on pretty much any streaming platform pretty soon. Yeah, and uh, yeah, um, um, yeah, but yeah, if, including if you, Netflix. Uh, you know, I don't know about no, that. No, no, Netflix. Yes. See, Dave, Netflix is different. That's Every other streaming service sells it. Netflix, <laughs> you got to get it picked up in another run after that. So the That's streaming right. yeah, services, yeah. you have to pay to download. Okay, Netflix so Hulu, where they're going to pay you to stream the film. Yeah, so if Netflix it, pays you. Then they put that film on there, but it's the others, even though they're subscription based like Amazon, Amazon also, you you have to pay for certain films to download. Right. But it, if, you, if you Google Dolphin Island, um, if I can use Google, is that allowed? Yes. yes. <laughs> yes Dolphin Island. They'll direct you to where, all, to where you can see it. All, I believe this comes out March the 3rd. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate it, Peter. Appreciate you coming on. Yes, it's very good to meet you. you. Great right, interview. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. And I'll be in that Super Bowl. I'm ready. I'm ready. We're already <laughs> Neil Haley Super Bowl, folks. Next and interviews, and Peter will be there, and everyone all together in one place for a super spreader. A red <laughs> carpet event. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. At Dave's place. All right. Take care. I'll see Take you guys. All right, guys. That was Caregiver's Celebrity Summit. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley Show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security videos since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K-12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensec's enterprise-level video management software, Perspective VMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit Lensec.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.